welcome to the Cree Deal Room. I'm your host, Adam Dunn. I'm a managing director at Bercadia, and I help investors buy and sell apartments across the Northeast. On this podcast, I talk with Cree professionals about their careers and deals to help investors, students, and brokers learn more about the commercial real estate industry. So this will be distilled into a condensed value-added conversation to better understand the background of our expert guests, the state and outlook of their industries, their motivations and goals, and advice for anyone who wants to get into their industry. On this episode of the CRE Deal Room, I have the pleasure of speaking with Sean Burton of City View. For the past 20 years, Sean and his team have invested in over 130 projects, including market rate, affordable, and workforce housing. In this conversation, Sean shares his experience of building one of the largest development firms on the West Coast and what he would do differently if he started today. City View is a fiduciary for some of the world's largest institutional investors and pension funds. I particularly enjoyed when Sean spoke about what it means to be a steward of their capital. Sean also spoke about the current challenges he sees in the market today, including regulatory risk and development capitalization risk. Sean and Cityview are navigating each to identify new opportunities today in order to keep an active development pipeline. Lastly, we learned about Sean's civic involvement in his work at the White House and his time spent in the service. And of course, we learned about Sean and Cityview's first development project. This was one of my favorite conversations to date, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I do. Thank you so much for listening. Sean, thank you so much for joining me today on the CRE Deal Room. I'm excited about our conversation, and I look forward to getting to know you better and City View better as well. Thank you for having, or thank you for being on. All right, Adam. Great. Thank you very much for having me on today. Very good. Well, let's jump right into it. We've got a lot to unpack. Why don't we start, Sean, with your backstory? Who are you? Where did you grow up, and what led you get into the commercial real estate business? Sure. Yeah. So I grew up I'm from California originally, and I grew up in California in Isla Vista near UCSB. And then in Eugene, Oregon. So I kind of went back and forth and lived in college towns growing up, lived in a lot of apartments. That's where I first got an interest in apartments because I really grew up living in apartments. Then I ended up going to college at UC Irvine and lived in Orange County and then was fortunate enough to work on the Clinton campaign and get a job in the Clinton White House right out of college and started there when I was 21 years old. Great. My, my dad actually grew up in Eugene, Oregon before relocating to the East Coast. So I know Eugene fairly well. Is that right? <laughs> it was a great place to grow up because it was, you didn't come out of Eugene overly sophisticated and kind of yeah. a bad sense of the word. You got to be kind of a kid when you were there. So it was a great place yeah. to grow he, up. He always shares stories about him fishing on the McKinsey River. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. That's yeah. great. Yeah, well, over the past 20 years, City View has invested in 130 projects to date. You're one of the leading developers and operators of workforce, attainable and market rate housing. What lessons have you learned while building one of the most active development firms on the West Coast, Sean? So we've learned quite a few things over the last 20 years. You know, we just had our 20 year anniversary earlier this month. And Congratulations. Thank you. I think the first is a continued focus on the fundamentals. We started the firm with this thesis that they're was going to be a generation of people who wanted to live in cities and be closer to their job, be closer to their friends, nightlife, culture, and those kinds of things. You know, that when we first started the firm in, in Southern California, the dominant kind of housing thesis was go buy a piece of land at the next freeway off-ramp, put up billboards, and if you build it, they will come. Um, sure. So you had the suburbanization happen in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And our thesis was, you know, let's build in cities. And the time we called it infill housing, that term's kind of fallen out of favor. Um, That didn't mean luxury high rises in downtowns, but it meant building in communities 
again, kind of near jobs and nightlife. And so that was our real focus. And I think sticking to the fundamentals, so looking for, for markets where there's strong demographic growth, there's strong job growth, there's good income growth. They're not just service jobs, but they're good jobs. So we usually have a kind of a, we look for the education of the workforce as well. And then where's there a mismatch with supply? Where is it difficult to get permits? Where is land expensive? Where is it complicated? And when we find that kind of strong demand and weak supply, those are the key markets that, that we focused on. And frankly, that was the thesis in 2002 when we kind of came up with the idea for the firm and it's still a thesis today. And we've tweaked it here and there because demographics change and job, you know, job centers change. And depending on how cities and municipalities work, barriers to entry go up and down, but we've really focused on those fundamentals. And I think it served us well and it served our investors well. Great. We'll, we'll jump into in a moment, your investors and then fundamentals have, have certainly changed over the last 20 years. We've gone through a couple cycles. We'll, we'll jump into that as well. But before we do so, would you do anything different? You started the firm 20 years ago. You've done over 130 projects. What would you do differently if you were starting today? What would I do differently? So I would say one thing that I would have done earlier is vertically integrate as a firm. When we first started the firm, we were an allocator. Our goal was to partner with builders and, de and developers and, and provide them capital. And we did that for the first five or six years sure. and had lots of partners. And then when the great financial crisis hit in 2008 and nine. We ended up with a lot of partners that were in trouble. They lost their focus. They went bankrupt. They couldn't put in their capital. They, this wasn't a priority for them anymore. So we ended up taking a bunch of projects back. And we realized at that time that we just weren't close enough to the real estate. Um, and we weren't adding enough value for our investors. So we made this decision to kind of build out the platform. And we started with a development team and we kind of built that organically over two or three years. And then we moved into construction management. Then we started being the general contractor for our value add projects. Uh, and then the final thing we did about five and a half years ago was start a property management firm. Uh, and I really wish we'd done that earlier um, because I think we could have added more value um, even earlier in the process. So I'd say that's one big kind of lesson learned for us. Sure. Love it. Thank you. We talked about your, your investors briefly. You're a fiduciary for institutional investors, yeah. some of the most well-known institutional investors in the country, including some pension funds. What does it mean to be a steward of their capital and secondary to that, what is the state of their investment appetite today, given the volatility yeah. that we've seen in the capital markets? Sure, sure. So look, it's, it's we take our role very seriously as fiduciaries. I mean, we are very fortunate and blessed to have public pension systems that are comprised of teachers and firefighters and police officers and nurses and government workers and others invest with us. And they're trusting us with their capital. They're giving us discretion and they're relying on firms like us to make sure that they have a secure retirement. These people that have worked their whole lives and are really counting on their retirement. And it's very personal to me. I have a, an older brother who is a just retired as a firefighter paramedic. He was on the job 37 years here in LA, running in and out of burning buildings. And he was really focused on his retirement and security so he could finally take a break. And, you know, he used to call me every Sunday because we had, we had capital from his pension system. And he would say, how do we do this week? You do a good job for me. I'm counting on you. you know, right. He was joking, but he wasn't joking. And it was never lost on me that, that we're serving these people. So that's very important to us that role and that trust that, that is, is placed into, in, into the firm. And I would say it's been interesting. The public pension fund 
world has been, you know, kind of upside down with what's happened with interest rates, with a lot of them have an exposure to office, quite a bit of exposure to office through the various vehicles. And that's been obviously problematic and they've spent a lot of time and effort focusing on that. So public pension fund investment, I think, has been down over the last year, year and a half. I do think that that will change over time. Now the stock market has done better. You don't have the same denominator effect. And so I think you'll start to see a pretty significant uptick in investment again going forward. Sure. Moving to the topic of risk, specifically regulatory risk, that's one of the largest topics on investor and developer minds across the country. What's happening in California with respect to the regulatory environment and how do you approach navigating the regulatory environment? And how much time do we have in the podcast? <laughs> I can, we talk all day. Give me about three hours. No, it's it's actually it's actually interesting. Obviously, California has really had its challenge from a regulatory standpoint, and uh, but there's often a lot more bark than bite. Um, some of these ballot initiatives and things that you've seen come over the years um, that are put on by private individuals on rent control and other things. You've seen those pretty soundly defeated at the ballot box, 15 or 20 points, which is a lot in today's environment. Sure. But there are challenges. I mean, like the, we, we passed in, here in Los Angeles a, a quote unquote mansion tax last year. It was frankly something the voters didn't understand. It was put on kind of the last minute on the ballot. The campaign that was run didn't really level with voters about what it was, they, they thought they were taxing millionaires and billionaires on their big mansions um, near the ocean. And what they didn't understand is they were basically taxing all new real estate, all new housing. Yeah. Um, and it's fun, you know fundamentally shut down kind of new market rate housing development in Los yeah. Angeles City. And, and look, this is a city that, according to government estimates, needs to build about 57,000 housing units per year. Wow. And about three quarters of those are market rate. Um, just to keep equilibrium with our population and job growth. In the heyday in 2019, when equity was falling off trees and interest rates were zero, uh, we built about 15,000 units. So we need to build four times as much. Now they passed a tax on, on gross income that um, basically is, is shut down all new, all new development. So look, there's real risk. Frankly, at City View, we see that as an opportunity. I know that sounds a little counterintuitive, but we've done so much over the years here we're based here. You cited the numbers earlier. We're kind of the largest developer multifamily in LA County and have been for a while. So we're picking our spots and I'd love to do more in LA City um, if we can figure it out. But we're in Culver City. We're in Hawthorne Gardena across from SpaceX. We're looking at Pasadena and Burbank. So other areas that have the same job story and demographic story as LA, but just not in the city. So uh, regulatory risk is a challenge. I will say there is a recognition for kind of the first time in my career of elected officials that we need to focus on housing production mm -hmm. and not simply restrictions like rent control. And there's been a number of bills passed in Sacramento uh, and signed by the governor in the last couple of years that I believe will significantly increase housing production in California. They allow for more density. They reduce parking requirements. They frankly make more housing, quote unquote, by right. So local officials can't kind of stop you for no reason. So I'm cautiously optimistic that there's some positive movement in Sacramento. And it's just something as an industry that we're really going to need to continue to pay attention to and be vigilant about. Sure. Well, there's a acute, there's an acute housing shortage from Massachusetts to California. So I'm glad to hear that you're starting to figure it out or California is starting to figure that out. Staying on the topic of risk, you said in 2015, equity was falling off trees. Today, developers 
face capitalization risk, um, just given the state of the capital markets mm -hmm. for sites they acquired. And we're hoping to capitalize in 23 and 24. Many sites today, as you know, being a, one of the most active developers on the West Coast, just aren't feasible. How do you keep your team focused and what are you doing today to keep an active development pipeline? Yeah, so yeah, that's a great question. And I would say that both equity and debt have been somewhat frozen for the last year. So there's a couple of ways that we stay busy. One is we have over 50 assets in various stages, either they're operating or in the middle of a value add program or a bunch of them that we're either entitling or developing. So there's kind of lots of work to be done. It's been difficult to get value add deals done over the last year. We've actually gone, I think, 18 months since we've closed a value add deal, which is the longest in 20 years at the firm. And we've underwritten a bunch. I think we just came out of a meeting with my acquisitions team where they told us that they underwrote 193 deals this year. And I think we, 193 deals, I think we offered on 21 and we basically ended up with you know, winning two land development deals. And so that that's really where we see the near-term opportunity. And like we're blessed to have a discretionary fund where we can move very quickly on that. So we don't need to go to New York and get capital for these deals that we do. And we do like the opportunity to go in and tie up land and great supply constrained locations, mm -hmm. take a project through um, entitlements, design it, line up the GNP contract, line up the loan, and then take the land down and build it. Um, so we're really building a pipeline for the future. And we have about, I don't know, 3,000 units that we're taking through that sort of process today, 2,500 to 3,000 and circling in on some more. And we think in, in a lot of these markets, you're going to see really interesting opportunity because people aren't building today. So you have demographic and job growth and wealth being created and incomes going up, but no new housing being built. So if we can have a pipeline ready to go in 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, we think that'll be you know great for our investors and, and really create some interesting opportunities. Sure. So two deals acquired over 193 underwritings, one, one in 100 call it. I mean, that's pretty consistent with what we're hearing from most yeah. investors and developers that we're talking to. That's, it's a lot of underwriting and a lot of work to, to. It is, but I think that you're going to see a buying opportunity in the next 12 to 24 months. That's as good or better than you saw in the great financial crisis. And we certainly feel like at our firm, we're poised to take advantage of that more so than we were 10 or 12 or 15 years ago. We're larger, we've done a lot more, the team's more experienced, we have better relationships. So we're excited about it. And we don't know exactly when that window is gonna open, but when it does open, it's not gonna be open for years. And so we feel that we have to be really active in the markets today, really understanding every deal that's in our buy box that goes to market, download the rent rolls, underwrite it. Um, we may not bid on all of them, yep. but to really stay engaged. So when that window does open, it doesn't take us months and months and months to kind of get up to speed. We're already up to speed and we're ready to really take advantage of the opportunity. Sure. You shared with us just a moment ago, the housing supply deficit, just to be at parity, given what's going on in the capital, state of the capitalization market, there's not going to be as many shovels in the ground as there has been historically, 24, 25, 26, 27. And yeah. I think there's going to be a, a, you know, much, much less supply across the country than there has been because of what we just talked about. What, what thoughts do you have on how do we solve this acute housing challenge across the country and, and yeah. really just build more housing. What, what needs to happen? 
Yeah, look, so we need to have a posture from a regulatory standpoint that's leading into housing production and not piling on so many restrictions with every new housing development that it kind of collapses under its own weight. And I think we need to have more buy right legislation. That's part of why we're excited about what's coming out of Sacramento, because we work very closely when we go into a neighborhood with community meetings and neighborhood councils and elected officials. But in some neighborhoods, you can have 30, 40 meetings over the course of a year or two. You can have everybody supporting what you do, but you have a couple of neighbors that are angry for whatever reason about traffic or other things. Mm -hmm. And the elected officials will try to dramatically limit or shut down your project. And this kind of nimbyism has been a real problem in California and other places. And it's led to this massive housing shortage and this housing crisis. And LA is a great example. The rule of thumb is that you want to add about 3% of new stock every year of housing because of demographic and job growth and obsolescence of existing housing, et cetera. In LA, I was just looking at the projections before this call, we are going to add between 0.5 and 0.3% of housing every year for the next five years. So rents are going to go up. Housing is going to get more expensive because we don't build enough. So it's educating public officials that this is really a supply demand issue. This isn't just greedy developers where the more restrictions you put on it, the more rents will come down. It actually has the opposite effect. And so I think that educating elected officials and others about this is a supply and demand issue. And look, developers need to be responsible and they need to make sure they're building affordable housing as well. But fundamentally, we just don't have enough housing for as many people as we have. And that's what continues to drive up prices and costs. Sure. I've seen a number of headlines over the last few years of people fleeing the West Coast, specifically California, to go to other markets. Can you talk to us about what's really happening, boots on the ground in California with respect to development themes and supply and demand and and what opportunities you see from a micro and macro level trend perspective? Yeah, it's really interesting. We get this question a lot as someone who's so heavily invested and active on the West Coast. We get it from a, I spent a lot of time in New York with our capital partners and other places. And a common question is, about this kind of demographic shift. And look, there's a million people have left California in the last eight years since 2015. That's true. It is a state of 40 million, which I think is important to remember. And the other thing that's important to remember too is it's it's a little bit of a tale of two cities. If when you unpack the demographic movement, the majority of people that are moving out of California tend to be older. They tend to live in the more rural parts of the state. They tend to be more conservative politically and maybe feel California doesn't fit with their values anymore. You still have an influx of millennials, of college-educated workers, um, because there's such great job opportunities, right? I mean, if you're going to work in AI, right, and you went to college anywhere in the country around the world, you're going to try to get to San Francisco in the Bay Area because that's where the jobs are being created. They're not being created in Tallahassee or Dallas. So you still have that pull and that... That ties in well with our thesis as a firm because we build, develop, own, operate near these job centers where you have a lot of growth, where you have a lot of tech, where you have a lot of aerospace. And so you're still seeing growth in those areas. So I do think that it's important to kind of unpack the numbers when we see national headlines and really understand the, the story. Sure. 
With respect to construction costs, are you seeing any relief as you're pricing the two acquisitions that you've they've done recently? Are you seeing any relief as you're underwriting those deals and construction? Are the construction costs coming in, or what's the? Status? Yeah, it's interesting. We actually are, and it's the first time in many years I've been able to say that. We saw a little bit during COVID. There was a six month period at the beginning of COVID where we repriced a couple of deals and we saw costs come down, but, mm-hmm. but pretty much they've been on a march up since the Great Financial Crisis. So we have see, we're seeing costs on materials come down. Obviously, lumber's you know a third of what it was during COVID, and you're seeing that with some other materials as well. But what's really interesting is labor, and that's obviously a major you know driver in our performers and the multifamily side. You've really seen labor moderate. I wouldn't say you're seeing big you know drops in labor costs. But what's interesting now, and this is a leading indicator, is for many years, as you were bidding out a project, you'd called general contractors and subcontractors, and a lot of them were returning your call, and they were super busy and they had a pipeline for the next three or four years. Now they're calling us, general contractors and subcontractors, saying, hey, what do you have coming up in 24? What are you working on? We haven't worked with you in a while. We would love to just meet you and start talking about our capabilities. I guess the dynamic is shifted because I think you're seeing these pipelines dry up and people realize, hey, if I want to work here, we're going to have to you know, figure out a way to make that happen. And so now look, we're not underwriting any sort of costs going down in our pro formas. We still put in escalation, but look, I can live with 3% escalation. I can't live with 1% per month. Like we saw in 2021, that's when it becomes challenging, but I do think it's moderating. And I think supply and demand is kicking in. Sure. Are there any geographies where, you know, maybe outside of California and inside of California that City View is focused on today where you're seeing micro level fundamentals as representative of where you want to be building, um, maybe not today, but in in the next three to five years, any specific opportunities? Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you a couple of examples. I'll give you one in California and one out of California. In California, we really like San Diego. That's a great market. You have really good job growth up in the UTC. You have strong universities there anchored by UCSD. And you have really interesting kind of biotech growth. You also have the military there, which is a stable source of, you know, kind of income in that community. And San Diego has been very smart. They passed something called the Complete Communities Plan, which is kind of by right entitlement. And we're in the middle of entitling a big project down there through that plan and a bunch of others are as well. And it's created some certainty and some predictability for developers. And it's also going to create a bunch of affordable housing, but it's you know, for, for what developers need to know is what are the rules? Because if you tell me the rules, then I can figure out, you know, how to make a deal work. But if you're constantly changing the rules on me, there's a lot of risk in that. And that becomes, you know, much more difficult to underwrite. So San Diego, I would say, is probably today my favorite market in, in California uh, to develop and, and buy and own in. And then outside of California, you know, we're big fans of Denver and Boulder. Uh, we've done a lot there over the years. We own 350 unit building there now that we built. Um, we're entitling another thousand units in that community and looking at more deals. And what's great about Denver is it, it has a really diverse job base. Uh, it's really kind of diversified over the years, it's not just oil and gas. You see a lot of financial services. You see a lot of companies relocating there, or having major offices there. It's also the number two place in the country where millennials say that they want to move to. Number one is Austin, and then uh, until they spend a summer there. But and so, but millennials want to be there, and the cost of living is great. 
uh, and you get the Rocky Mountain active lifestyle. So we're big fans of the Denver market and there's certain pockets in downtown or Union Station that are a little bit oversupplied. And But since we don't build high rise or those kinds of projects, we're not in those neighborhoods anyway, sure. but in the tech center and a bunch of other the markets in and around Denver, we're big fans. Great. City View has developed market rate housing, workforce housing, attainable housing. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about Opportunity Zone investments that you that City View has made and your experience with the QOZ yeah. market. Yeah, so we've done a number of Opportunity Zone deals and we finished some and we're actively building some today. What's interesting about those is every single one of those was a deal we were going to do anyway, hmm. and they just happen to be designated an Opportunity Zone. And I think some people have gotten in trouble with Opportunity Zones because they went after a project because it had a certain tax treatment. And to us, that's always dangerous because real estate's fu about fundamentals and you need to build a good real estate you know, project in the first place or buy a good one in the first place before you start worrying about tax structure and these other things. So that's been a great program. And I think it's pulled a bunch of additional capital into real estate development in particular. I will say that the interest in opportunity zones has waned quite a bit over the last year or so. The, the benefits are um, expiring. They're not as beneficial as they were when they first put the program in place. There's been some talk at, at the national level and in Congress about extending those benefits. Um, but I'm frankly with what's going on in Washington, I'm not optimistic that anything's going to get passed. So I think it has been a successful program, but I don't know how viable it's going to be going forward. Got it. You, you teed me up for the next question. You mentioned Washington. We're going to move away from real estate for a moment. In the beginning of the conversation, you, you touched briefly on your civic involvement. Yeah. Tell us about your time spent serving the White House and being appointed to oversee the Los Angeles Board of Airport Commissioners and now serving on the board of the Metropolitan Washington Airports Authority. What have you learned in your civic involvement and about the global aviation system? Yeah, so I was fortunate to get a job in the White House right out of college uh, at 21. And it was an incredible experience. I mean, it was the very beginning of the Clinton administration. We were going to change the world, what we all thought. But I worked with really smart people who, who had this incredible work ethic and were really trying to make a difference in people's lives and the, and the country. And so that was a wonderful, wonderful experience and gave me, a, frankly, a lifelong passion for public service. I mean, I run City View and that's my full-time endeavor, but I always try to do one kind of major public service thing at a time so I can contribute and give back. And so... The last mayor appointed me to be president of the airport commission here in Los Angeles that oversees LAX and Van Nuys. And that was an incredible opportunity because LAX really hadn't been modernized since the Olympics in 84 in Los Angeles. And wow. his charge was really try to bring LAX into the 21st century. And so we were able to do a massive capital investment program, about $20 billion dollars. Uh, really without any tax dollars. We did it all with our cash flow and, and some government grants from Washington and basically modernized every terminal, built a new international terminal. And then next year, they will complete the um, new rail system, which will address the biggest issue LAX faces, which is traffic in and out of the airport. And that should pull 30, 40, 50% of the traffic out of the airport and largest rental car facility in the world we built. So wow. really, really an interesting opportunity. And then I got a call from the White House to say, hey, the president has a, a spot on the, the National Airport Authority, the Metropolitan Washington, which oversees Dulles Airport and, and Reagan National. And he gets three slots on this. And if you're up for it, we'll nominate you, but you got to go through a Senate confirmation process, which is not for the faint of heart. 
so, so I agreed to do that and went through that process and, and was confirmed uh, a little over a year ago. And I've been serving on that, that board. And that's really interesting as well. It's a whole different set of issues in terms of what the National Capital Region you know, deals with from an aviation perspective. Um, but there's also an opportunity to do a little bit of what we did at LAX, which is really modernize Dulles and bring that airport into the 21st century. And so I chair the strategic planning committee for that board. And that's really my focus there. So it's, again, I try to do kind of one thing at a time. I left the LAX board to do the Washington board because yep. um, obviously City View is incredibly busy, but I do feel like it's important that we all do some public service in whatever form that takes. And I also think, frankly, it, it makes me a better executive here. It makes me a better investor because it gives you a exposure to other things as well. So it's been a really kind of rewarding experience and I, I look forward to continuing it. Great. Another um, topic to move to non-real estate oriented, but understand you were in the United States Navy. How did being in the Navy shape who you are today? Yeah. So I joined the Navy Reserve uh, after September 11th. I was angry with what happened and I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to join full time, but my wife had a, I had a one-year-old and she was pregnant with our second. And so that would not have been a good move, but the Navy had created a program uh, called the Direct Commission Officer Program because they needed certain specialists. They needed doctors, they needed nurses, and they needed intelligence officers. And so they created this kind of truncated program where they said, mm -hmm. hey, we're going to put you through much more quickly. And then when you come in and do your reserve duty on weekends and for your kind of active duty days per year, you're going to do real work and actually develop intelligence. They'll be pushed to what they call the warfighters, the people that were in Afghanistan or Iraq. And so I joined that program and I did it for eight years and it was incredibly rewarding. And I came away with any kind of even a deeper respect for the people in our military and, and their values and how hard they work for no money compared to what people make in the private sector and kind of their passion. And it, it also taught me a lot about leadership and because I've been fortunate to have some leadership roles in different parts of my life, but it means something different when you're in the military, because if you make a mistake there, somebody can get killed. And, and that's a whole different level of responsibility. And then I just, I worked with some wonderful people there and learned a lot. And I, I've tried to apply those lessons to, to what I do in, in my private sector and other roles. Well, we're, we're nearing the end of the conversation here. I've got a, a few final questions for you, Sean. One of the main goals of the CRE deal room is to help investors and developers unlock more opportunities. Many of the listeners are brokers or they're um, capital allocators. What's next for City, City View? What geographies are you looking to in, invest in? You talked, you highlighted a couple in, with San Diego, Denver, and Boulder. How can our listeners help City View grow? Sure. So we're going to be incredibly active going forward. We're not, we're not taking our foot off the gas pedal at all. As I said earlier, I think we're going to see some of the best buying opportunities we've seen in, in our careers, Adam. And so we're going to, we're going to continue to stay focused on the, the kind of gateway West Coast markets. For us, that's San Diego, Orange County, LA, the Bay Area, we've done a ton up there. It's been slow because of the work from home and other policies, but you're starting to see some life there. Sure. Uh, Pacific Northwest in Seattle, and then Denver, Boulder, uh, and down through kind of Phoenix into Austin and Dallas. Those are our target markets. That's where City View is focused for our entire 20 years. And we think there's going to be, you know, kind of great opportunities, but we're not in a hurry. Like we don't want to jump the gun. 
We, we have patients, uh, we have capital, and we do partner with a lot of capital providers as well. We're blessed with wonderful investors. And so we're going to pick our spots. And then when this window does open, we're going to back up the truck and, and buy everything we can. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. Final, final three questions. These are my favorite three questions to wrap everything up here. Tell us about your first deal. Where was it? What was the size and how long ago? Yeah, it was a, our first deal at, at, at City View was a small lot subdivision in Santa Maria, uh, California. There was a new state law that allowed you to build. It was for sale housing. We loved Santa Maria. It was a wonderful market that had all these growth restrictions. So it was impossible to get permits, but had a great quality of life. And so we, we built that. I think it was 149 units. It was called Arbor Walk. Yeah. And it was incredibly complicated, but it was the first deal that we did. And it turned out to be, I still think, one of the best we ever did. So that was really, really fun to work on. That's great. That, that may have answered my second question, which is what is your most complex deal? Was it that same deal or is there one that takes the cake? It's, you know, it's, it's, um, We've had so many complex deals out of it. It's hard to pick. It's like picking your favorite child. Sure. But that's hard to do. I mean, we've, again, because we work in cities, um, and we're not just starting with a clean plot of land. You always have to deal with what are the existing land uses you have to deal with. Are there environmental issues? Like you got to get comfortable with the fact that there was an oil well on the side. Or there's methane gas in the testing and it's complicated in that sense. And then there's the community piece, right? Dealing with communities and that like the idea of housing, but are nervous about traffic. They're nervous about what kind of neighbor you're going to be. So I wish I could pick one, but I feel like they're all, they all have some hair in them, but that's why there's the opportunity. Sure. My, my last question here, Sean, this is my favorite question. What have I not asked Sean Burton today that if you were interviewing yourself, you would want to know? Well, that's hard because you, you've been pretty thorough, Adam, in your, <laughs> in, your, uh, in your questioning today. Let's see. So if I had a ton of free time, I would be out on a river fly fishing every day. You haven't asked me that, but and I don't get to do it very often. It's not very good in California. Yeah. <laughs> but it's one of the only times that I can be out there and totally in the moment. I'm not thinking about work. My phone's not going off. I'm, yeah. you know, I'm just focused on seeing if that uh, indicator bobs and I got a fish on the line. Absolutely love it. Thank you for sharing that with yeah. us. Well, Sean, thank you so much for joining us on the CRE Deal Room. Thank you for your service in the United States Navy. We appreciate that. And I wish you and City View all, all the success going forward. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for tuning in to the Creed Deal Room with me, your host, Adam Dunn. If you're interested in being a guest on this podcast or you have a suggestion of whom I should interview and you're in the commercial real estate industry, hit me up. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you next time in the Creed Deal Room. Thank you.